Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Yo, 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 welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, not joining me today, and maybe I shouldn't say this because so many people will drop off immediately, but not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, my op, Mr. Daly, and that's because he's spending the week with the fam jam, soaking up the rays and having some fun before the kids go back to school, but we have an action-packed show tonight. Hope you're enjoying your summer. Hope you're enjoying the summer break. Right from the top, as we always do, big shout out to Race Weekend. If you're interested in subscribing to that fantastic publication, hit up raceweekend.co. Make sure you lock in for Collection 2, which looks like it's going to be an absolute banger. Also, don't forget, if you're in the market for some F1 memorabilia, particularly stuff that has an official signature make sure you check out racing exclusives Tees in the gang over there in the european union do a fantastic job aggregating and compiling some of the very best authentic licensed formula one memorabilia that you can get your hands on and of course big shout out to that team because they are the group that supplied us with the helmet for our F1 Fantasy League this year. So, of course, that one-half scale signed with a certificate of authenticity helmet by Max Verstappen uh, was obviously a contribution from that team, and we are eternally indebted to them for that. A couple of other things to shout out. One, happy 70th birthday to Nigel Mansell. Nigel Mansell, of course, born in Worcestershire. Worcestershire? I'm British, and I still have trouble pronouncing some of the place names, but born in 1953 in Worcestershire in the UK. He, of course, was active in Formula One from 1980 to 1992, and again from 1994 to 1995. During his time in Formula One, he raced for Lotus, Williams, Ferrari, and McLaren. His Formula One history was comprised of 192 race starts, which of course is pretty impressive given the fact that the average calendar back then was 14 to 17 races. He of course won the championship in 1992 with Williams. Uh, what was memorable about that championship, of course, was that he won nine of 16 races, including eight of the first 10, and then retired in three of the final four races. But because he had such a torrid start, uh, of course, that championship was a lock. Uh, that's also a really special championship for me. When I was young, I used to spend the summers at my grandparents' house in South Devon, which of course is in the southwest of England. And every single Sunday, we would sit in the kitchen watching Formula One on BBC or ITV, I can never remember, but watching live Formula One races on their small white color Sony Trinitron TV. And those memories will be with me forever. And of course, Nigel Mansell was somebody that my grandparents both cheered for very much so, of course, representing 
representing the United Kingdom and representing England. In his Formula One career, he scored 31 race wins, 59 podiums, 32 poles, and 30 fastest laps. Of course, and this is what makes his career so intriguing, after the championship in 92, his relationship with the Williams team fell apart and he departed for Indy, where in a season and a half, he had 31 starts, 5 wins, 13 podiums, 10 poles, and 4 fastest laps. But of course, he won the 1993 Indy Championship racing for Newman Haas Racing. So very, very cool story there. Also, if you guys haven't heard, we dropped Power Units 102 last week. Make sure you check that out. And like I said on the Sunday podcast, we need your help because we want to record Power Units 103. But in doing so, we need your questions. And we want you to reach out, send us your questions via a voice note. And if you need some help understanding or figuring out how to do that, you can just send us an email or slide into our DMs. But we actually want to play the questions on the air to make it kind of like sports talk radio a little bit, like a little bit old school. But we think it could be a lot of fun and it's a really cool way to be inclusive with our audience. So we're super excited to do that. And if we get your questions, we'll probably drop that during the summer break. If you're curious what Daly's been up to, by the way, he did record a podcast yesterday. Uh, and that's going to be a very cool Australia-themed or australia centric podcast. I haven't heard it, but Daly was very excited about it. And that will be dropping. That will be dropping on Sunday. So you'll have that in your feed for Monday morning. Uh, a couple of other things before we kind of kick off the show that I wanted to touch on is if you didn't hear, there was some major blockbuster news in the world of sports media this week. Dave Portnoy, of course, the previous owner and the founder of Barstool Sports. You may love it. You may not love it. But of course, they've made a big impact on the sports gambling scene um, and on the sports media scene. Uh, they kind of arose, I think, in the early 2000s in the Boston area, providing gambling news, fantasy news, all those kind of things. And of course, eventually, it rolled into a bigger internet-based media corporation. But recently, a company called Penn, Penn Entertainment, which is a big gambling company, had actually acquired the balance or the bulk of Barstool Sports from David Portnoy. And the intent was that they were going to create this big combined entity that was going to be, and I think it was going to be called um, Barstool Betting or something like that. But ultimately, this Penn Entertainment Company, which is big in the gambling world, was going to leverage the Barstool branding to drive a big sports betting book. Because of course, as sports gambling and, and betting becomes legalized in more and more states across the US, there's more and more of a market. But it was really interesting because Penn Entertainment had basically spent $550 million to acquire Barstool Sports. And just months later, they've now sold it back to Dave Portnoy for a buck. So they completely deinvested or divinvested. I don't even know the word, but they basically divested themselves of their barstool experience. And the reason they've done so is because they're now going to partner with ESPN. And I think some of the considerations here was that barstool sports doesn't work well in a regulated space. In fact, I think Dave Portnoy said exactly that. Uh, he said, and I quote unquote, we underestimated just how tough it is for myself and a barstool to operate in a regulated world. We got denied gambling licenses because of me. So the regulated industry is probably not the best place for barstool sports and the type of content that we make. So of course, 
Dave sold Barstool to Penn Entertainment for $550 million, bought it back for a buck. Uh, it looks like in this case, Penn is going to take a multi, multi hundred million dollar markdown on the affair, but they are now partnering with ESPN and they're going to launch a new entity called ESPN Bet. And of course, ESPN is in a really interesting place right now because over the last 10 years, they have shed subscribers at a massive rate and the bulk of ESPN's income has come from sub fees, subscriber fees that are paid to them by the cable providers. But as people have cut their cord, they've lost their, their revenue. And of course, that's part of the bigger Disney question right now, which is this giant Disney monolith, which owns cruise lines and theme parks and movie studios. And of course, they bought all of the assets from 20th Century Fox a few years ago. They're now sitting here hemorrhaging money and wondering what they're going to do with ESPN. So it looks like this is going to extend a lifeline to ESPN. I think they're going to be making upwards of $150 million a year through license licensing as part of this. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting story. And because we're part of the sports media landscape, I thought it would be pretty cool to uh, touch on touch on that. But if you're a Barstool fan, uh, this is probably pretty cool because if you're a Barstool fan, you're probably a big Dave Portnoy fan. And obviously for him to be able to reacquire all of that, that enterprise for a buck is, is pretty cool. Probably also a good time as we're talking about gambling and betting. And I, I'll be fully honest with everyone here. Betting, gambling is not me. I don't partake. Um, I do enjoy fantasy sports because to me it's it's different. It's more fun. It's more of a, a healthy, wholesome activity, especially if you're joining a free fantasy league like ours was. But now's probably a good time to segue and give a bit of an update. So of course, we are 12 races into a 22 race championship. So there's a lot of competition left. And I keep eagerly explaining that because I don't want people to be checking out and we've seen a lot of change in the top 10. But if we quickly run through our top 10, our top 15, currently sitting in number one spot, Vince Des 2, number two, Bengals Bubs, number three, Vince Des 1, number four, L1F1, number five, Michael Cronje 16, number six, Ole's Lanus, number seven, No Doze, number eight, Crash Team Racing 1, number nine, Nathan's Team, number 10, Gotifi Team, number 11, The Bad Guy 1, number 12, Lil Pitwall, number 12, Cranger, number 14, Tails I Win, and slot it in in the number 15 spot Zanata team number two so again my message to you is there's still lots of championship left anything can happen now what probably won't happen is kind of the the current situation at the top of the world drivers championship standings and I'll quickly run through these as a bit of a reminder but of course Max Verstappen is leading the drivers championship on 314 points he's more than 100 points up on his teammate Sergio Perez who sits on 189 and Sergio and sorry Fernando Alonso currently sits number Three with 149 points, followed by Lewis Hamilton with 148, Charles Leclerc with 99, George Russell with 99, Carlos Sainz Jr. with 92, Lando Norris with 69. Of course, he and his team is surging. Lance Stroll, a very, very, very disappointing 47 points, especially relative to his teammate who has triple the points. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. And then finally, Esteban Ocon, the French driver, rounding out the top 10 on 35 points. And then from a Constructors' Championship perspective, again, none of this is going to change for a couple of weeks because we're during the summer break. But Red Bull up 503 points, Mercedes 247, Aston Martin continues to slide, 196, Ferrari 191, McLaren sits on 103, Alpine 57, Williams on 11, Haas on 11, Alfa Romeo on 9, and Alfa Tauri, of course, sits on 3, uh, large 
largely due to Yuki Tsunoda's three P10 finishes. So that kind of gives us a bit of an update from a championship perspective. A couple of other mini stories as we move along here. One, it was revealed this week in an interview that Alex Albon, Alex Albon has already driven the 2024 Williams car. In fact, he drove it as far back as April. Now, of course, you might be saying, how is that possible? Wouldn't there have been photography? But no, he hasn't driven a physical 2024 variation of the car, but he has been driving it in the sim, which is really impressive because that's significantly ahead of schedule relative to where Williams has been over the past four or five years in terms of developing the car for a subsequent season. So that's good news, and hopefully they'll be able to build on some of the things that have been successful about this year's car, uh, especially its top line, straight line speed. Um, another story that's worth touching on, and I think we've spoken about this over the last couple of weeks, is that Sebastian Vettel has denied that he is looking at potentially suiting up for a full-time Formula E drive. I think a lot of us, myself included, uh, were a little bit excited about that premise, and it seemed to make sense based on where he is from a socially conscious perspective. Obviously, the environment is very important to him, and he's talked a lot about that over the last couple of years, and it just seemed like that that might be a good tie-up. Uh, it would also have been an absolute boon for Formula E, who has certainly had Formula One drivers in their cars, but they've never had a four times Formula One world champion driving one of their cars. Another story that came out this week, and probably less a story, but more a report that was released from sports business publication Sportico is a force ranking or a list of valuations for North American pro sports teams. And of course, I think sometimes we veer off topic a little bit, but we like to talk about sports media in general, and we like to talk about sports more generally speaking, because it's always fun to be able to kind of draw, draw that back or link that back to Formula One. Uh, but they they released their, their financial rankings based on a number of different inputs. So they basically uh, provided their estimated valuations for all of North America's big five teams. So the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, um, the NBA, and Major League Soccer, etc. A couple of things that are pretty striking about this is the fact that the average value of an MLS team is now an astounding $582 million. Of course, an expansion team in that sport would have net you just, or would have cost you just $10 million as recently as 2007, so pretty crazy. The average value of an NBA team is $3 billion. The average value of an NFL team is $5.14 billion. The average value of a Major League Baseball team is $2.36 billion. The average value of an NHL team is $1 billion. The average value of a Premier League team over in British soccer, European soccer, English soccer, $1.51 billion. And according to Sportico, the average value this year of a Formula One team, and see how I tie this back to F1 eventually, but the average value of a Formula One team, according to Sportico, is $1.53 billion. So a, a couple of important takeaways from this list is obviously... Sportico has taken some liberties with the inputs because I don't think they have really clear line of sight into the financial books for a lot of these teams. But a couple of things that is pretty remarkable is one, for an MLS team with a value of $582 million, which is again the value, the average revenue, the average annual revenue in that sport is only $57 bucks. So the average value to revenue multiplier is 10.2, meaning that the current valuation of an MLS team is 10 times higher than they earn in revenue per year, which is very bubble-esque to me. It's either very, very um, generous, very, very 
hopeful um, or maybe they know some things about the future of that sport that the rest of us don't. In the NBA, again, the average value is $3 billion. The average revenue is $336 million. So the multiplier is 8.9. In the NFL, uh, the average value is $5.14 billion. Of course, the NFL dominates these rankings. The average revenue is 586, meaning the multiplier is 8.8. Major League Baseball, $2.36 billion. Average revenue, $362 million. That's really on the back of regional sports deals and ticket revenue. Again, the multiplier there is 6.5. The NHL, $1 billion with average revenues of 192, meaning their multiplier is 5.3. F1, uh, and this is the interesting one, again, the average projected value of a Formula One team now is $1.53 billion, which is probably going to speak speak volumes about what the future anti-dilution fee could potentially look like. And the average value is, or is the average annual revenue for an F1 team is $300 million, meaning the multiplier is 5.1. And if that number is accurate, it really speaks to the fact that, hey, a $200 million anti-dilution fee isn't necessarily re relevant um, or even responsible to the rest of the sport if the average revenue for an F1 team is $300 million. And then finally, the Premier League, $1.5 billion as an annual average, or sorry, as an average value. Now, this number is a little bit misleading because I think in a league where you have re re relegation, typically the teams at the top, obviously Liverpool and, and Arsenal and Chelsea um, and Man City and Man United, their valuations are in the multiple, multiple, multiple billions of dollars. But a lot of those smaller teams that play in smaller facilities, typically their valuations are minuscule because of course they could be relegated at any given time, not even be competing in the league. That said, the average revenue in Premier League soccer is $346 million with a multiplier of 4.4. And just to quickly Take a snapshot at some of the big, the big value teams, the most valuable team in North American pro sports. No surprising, the Dallas Cowboys, $9.2 billion. Number two, the Golden State Warriors at $7.56 billion. The New York Yankees clock in at number three at $7.13 billion. And then with the exception of the Knicks, the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Red Sox, and the Cubs, the rest of the top 30 is just dominated. Top 40 is just dominated by NFL teams. And for those of you in the great white North, if you're interested, the most valuable team in Canada, the Toronto Raptors clocks in at over $3 billion. The next highest value team is the Toronto Maple Leafs at a little over $2 billion. So pretty interesting there, but I thought it would be fun to, to touch on that. Uh, another story kind of shifting gears and getting back into F1. There's a neat chart that kind of populated in social media feeds everywhere this week. And it's just kind of a reminder of the current status of driving lineups heading into 2024. It's silly season now. A lot could still happen. We're all eager to hear what some of these contracts begin to look like. But Max Verstappen, Sergio Perez, both under contract for Red Bull for 24. Uh, Aston Martin, same deal. Light Stroll, Fernando Alonso, both under contract. Obviously, we've got a lot of security at McLaren. Norris and Piastri will be back. With Williams, only Albon is under contract next year. And with Alpha Tauri, sorry, not Alpha Tauri, Sauber slash Alfa Romeo, although my promise was that I was only going to start referring to them as Sauber going forward. Only Valtteri Bottas is under contract. Uh, for Alfa Tauri, neither Yuki is under contract, nor Daniel Ricciardo is under contract next year. So they've got two open seats. Haas has two open seats, and neither of their drivers are under contract for next year. Alpine has some consistency, at least in the, the driver position, even though the front office is chaos at that organization right now. Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon are both expected to be back as they're both under contract for 24. Uh, likewise with Ferrari, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz are both expected to be back as they're under contract, although I think both are eager, eager, eager to extend. And then when it comes to Mercedes, George Russell is under contract through 24. 
Lewis Hamilton is not under contract, and I think there's a lot of speculation and questions as to perhaps why uh, that contract hasn't been signed. But at this point, I think we can only speculate, but I think a smart gambling person, and I'm certainly not one of those, but uh, somebody who might be willing to put a wager down would probably be probably be smart to wager that Lewis Hamilton will be back. It will be with a mega deal. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, finally, before we take a break and jump into the news, one last story. Uh, not really a story, but one last update I thought was worth sharing. And this is, a, this is a story that was sent to us by one of our listeners. They're obviously not the only team that does this, but I wasn't aware that Red Bull actually offers Formula One screening events for Formula One events. So Formula One Grand Prix qualifying, things like that. And I'm reading here from experiences.redbullracing.com. But Red Bull offers a quote-unquote, an exclusive screening experience surrounded by fellow F1 trademark enthusiasts and an inspiring backdrop of illustrious Red Bull racing history, you're invited to our exclusive live Grand Prix Formula One screening events hosted here at the Red Bull Racing Technology Campus in Milton Keynes. This is a unique opportunity to experience the vibrant atmosphere of the circuit in a factory where all of our Formula One cars are designed, manufactured, and built for just 250 pounds plus tax, you'll enjoy themed food and drink, a strategist Q&A, and a live race commentator who will bring the ambience of the Grand Prix directly to you. Plus, you'll get to take home a special memento from your day at Milton Keynes. What's included as part of this unique event, you'll be able to explore the Hall of Fame and experience exclusive access to our fleet of race cars, plus go behind the scenes with our captivating activities, including Batac reaction testing and sim racing, which will be hosted by an Oracle Red Bull Racing Ambassador. You'll get exclusive access to MK7, Hall of Fame, our fleet of race cars and activities include the reaction testing experience and sim racing. So if you live in the UK or you're planning to travel to the UK and you are a Red Bull enthusiast, you can actually watch a Formula One Grand Prix event from the Milton Keynes campus, which is pretty cool. And again, if you're interested in checking that out, go to experiences.redbullracing.com. And I will also note that they are not the only team that does this. I, I've been informed that Williams does the exact same thing at their hospitality center. Now, the one thing that I would caution that in both cases, you do not get access to the factories. The factories are sealed, they're secured, and you will only be in hospitality areas. Although you will have the opportunity to check out some Formula One cars because they typically bring them out for your viewing pleasure. So with all of that said, let's take a quick break. And then when we get back, we'll jump right into the news and talk a little bit about Lance Stroll.
Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and now it's time for the news. And today we start with Mr. Lance Stroll. Rather, a comparison of Lance's season so far versus his new teammate, Fernando Alonso. And I think as everybody who listens to this show knows, I have a condo on Lance Stroll Island, but my mortgage renewal is coming soon and the interest is going to be crazy. So I am facing that critical question of what to do with my condo on Lance Stroll Island. And I think as it stands, the smart, prudent thing to do might be to move on, to sell that condo. So here is a quick snapshot. And again, you know all of this. There's probably nothing new here, but a quick snapshot of Lance Stroll versus Fernando Alonso. Year to date, from a race classification perspective, Fernando has outperformed Lance 11 to 1 in 12 Grand Prix. Uh, Fernando has outqualified Lance Stroll 10 to 2. He scored 149 points to Lance's 47, so a 102 point delta that's only bettered in the championship by Max Verstappen over his teammate Sergio Perez. In terms of podiums, of course, Fernando Alonso has six. Lance Stroll has zero in terms of best race finishes. Of course, Fernando Alonso scored a couple of P2s. Lance had a single P4, of course, in that hectic, crazy Australian Grand Prix. At least I think it was the Australian Grand Prix. It's been a long season. And of course, from a highest grid position, Mr. Fernando Alonso has qualified P2. And the best start that Mr. Lance Stroll has so far this year is, is P5. Now, credit to Lance. He's only had one DNF. Fernando Alonso has had zero. Both of those are, are very strong performances. But I, I think if you look at this, this dynamic, this competition between these two drivers, that they are operating in totally different stratospheres. Now, of course, we've been very critical of Lance this year because obviously we want him to be successful. We kind of need him to be successful as a, a Canadian, a, a North American driver. But it's, it's really difficult to make excuses for his performance this year. Now, all of that said, let's back up to the winter and of course he was involved in a cycling incident and reportedly damaged his foot and broke both of his wrists that's that's terrible and I think it's also commendable that he was cycling because I think with the exception of Mark Daly most people don't cycle for fun they cycle for fitness and cycling is a major way that a lot of Formula 1 drivers keep their cardio in a really good place in the offseason so presumably when he was cycling he was training and that's that is something that I, I think we should probably show a great deal of respect for. I think the challenge is the speed at which he came back. And of course, shortly after the accident, which was shrouded in secrecy, he rushed back because the Aston Martin looked so tremendous during winter testing. And obviously he was eager to come back and get in that car. And I think the last thing that he probably wanted personally, selfishly, was to see a reserve driver getting some serious reps and putting in some really strong performances early in the season. And you know what? Naturally, if you're a competitor, you want to be back. You don't want to be giving up your seat and you're going to push through injuries. I think the challenge was that maybe in hindsight, the rest thing would have been for him to sit out a few weeks or a month or six weeks to fully recover and let that reserve driver do their role. But ultimately he, the team and his medical support decided to bring him back. Now, Mike Crack has been asked repeatedly about Lance Stroll's performance so far this year. And recently he said the following when asked about the highlights of Lance Stroll's season, of which there really haven't been many, but Mike Crack, team principal for Aston Martin said, it's not necessarily the podiums for me. Lance has come back 
from injury and Fernando's special approach in Monaco are what stand out. Lance showed what a fighter he is when he jumped back in the car with broken wrists and a broken toe. The heart it took to do that lifted everyone and got us going in a really positive frame of mind. Lance hasn't had a lot of luck this year aside from his broken bones. A few things have gone against him that really weren't his fault. The championship table tells a story, but inside the team, we know what really happens. I think obviously Mike Cracks in a very difficult position because this is a contracted driver who is also the son of the team owner, which makes it much more complex and sensitive. And I think obviously when the delta between the two drivers is so significantly, he's going to be asked that question. And I think the frustration, I think for a lot of people on the outside looking in is one, we all know Lance Stroll is a very capable driver. You don't score a P3 in Baku in your rookie season if you're not. And certainly he's shown flashes but even if you put aside his injuries and even if you were to put aside the first couple of grand prix from this season if you look at the last five six seven eight races he hasn't even been remotely in the stratosphere of fernando alonso his racecraft isn't his good he doesn't break as late he doesn't corner as smoothly he doesn't get a speed as quickly it's just like every dimension of, of his racecraft pales in comparison to fernando alonso despite the fact that fernando's 16 17 years older than him. And there's something to be said for experience, but there's also something to be said for a 40 or two year old body that's competed in more than 300 Formula One Grand Prix. So I, I, I respect that Mike Crack's in a difficult position because one, you don't want to openly criticize your driver too much in public, but it's also challenging when this driver isn't necessarily there on merit, but maybe perhaps because his father owns the team. And I say all that acknowledging that he is a very talented driver and on skill set alone, he probably deserves to be on the grid. But based on his performances this year, it's hard to make the argument that he should be suiting up to next to Fernando Alonso every single week. So again, we still have 10 races left in this championship. We'll, we'll see what happens. Obviously, this is a team that is also now shrouded in controversy because their performance has dropped off significantly. And there's a lot of questions as to why. And we spoke last week and we shared some quotes that Mike Crack attributes a lot of their demise in performance, a lot of their diminishing performance on the fact that they introduced a new floor that had some unintended consequences for the way that other aerodynamic surfaces on the car functions. That, hey, the new floor created more downforce, yes, but it created other issues that have unsettled the car. And increasingly, there seems to be this argument that, hey, perhaps the wing that they were running through the first handful of races this season wasn't necessarily fully compliant with the regulations and that when they made changes to the wing that made it more compliant with the regulations, it had the perhaps unintended or perhaps intended uh, consequence or effect of unsettling the car and making it far less grippy in the corners, which is where it really, really shone through the first handful of races. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any transparency around that. For now, what we know from Mike Crack is that, hey, we introduced a new floor. We've introduced some upgrades. They had some unintended impacts on other aspects of the car and we're working through revising those so we can recover all the performance that we lost. Now the next story and this one comes from German motorsports publication Auto Motor und Sports or as we typically refer to it around these parts AMUS. Uh, they've reported that there's conversation within the F1 ecosystem about potentially eliminating the usage of DRS during qualifying, which of course would possibly have a, a negative effect on Red Bull because Red Bull seems to have by far the most effective DRS capabilities in the sport. But all of that said, 
even if you look at Red Bull performance relative to the rest of the field on straights and over a one-lap race distance when you consider average speed, even without DRS, they're typically a kilometer or two kilometers faster than the rest of the field. So maybe it would mix things up from a qualifying perspective and make things a little bit more exciting. Ultimately, it might not. And realistically, given the capabilities of the current Red Bull car, the RB19, I think handicapping them and having them start P3, P4, P5 probably wouldn't have a significant outcome or difference in terms of the outcome of the championship. Now, all of that said, it's it's not clear why this is being considered, unless you speak German, you can get a little bit deeper into the article and some of the commentary. It's not particularly clear why this is being considered. It's also not particularly clear when this might be introduced. Could it be a 2023 change or could it be a 24, 25 or potentially even a 26 alteration to the sport? Now, personally, I, I love qualifying as it is today, I, I love and appreciate the fact that teams are given this opportunity to set up their cars in a way that enables them to deliver one incredibly hot lap in qualifying in a bid to get through Q3, Q2, and and fight for that fight for that pole in 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 the final qualifying session. I, I like that, and, and I think there's something unique and novel about that, and certainly it benefits some of the more capable teams over some of the other teams, but I like the fact that historically they get to choose their their tire compound, and they can run as little fuel in that tank as possible, so the car can be as light on its feet as possible. Like These are all things that I feel are very compelling, and of course, the sport is experimenting with that concept of dictating tire compound by qualifying session and things like that. I don't understand why this would be considered that if you're going to allow DRS, which is an artificial driver aid or equalizer during the Grand Prix itself, why it wouldn't be available to the drivers during the races. Now, like I said, certainly it would benefit some teams more than other teams. And Red Bull obviously has a very, very significant top speed advantage on every track, on every circuit on the calendar. And I mean, I, there's an article, there's a quote here from Crash.net and it says, Data gathered by AMUS revealed the margin of Red Bull's top speed advantage at Spa, with their drivers clocking 340.8 and 338.8, respectively, with DRS activated, while Hamilton passed through the same point at only 333 kilometers. So again, I don't know what the burning desire is to introduce this, whether it's to clear, kind of tighten up the field, reduce perhaps a perceived advantage or a real advantage that a single team has. But I, I'm very happy with qualifying in its current format. I don't like the tinkering. I, I kind of understand introducing required compounds by qualifying session. That kind of makes sense to me, but I don't like the idea that we might strip out DRS, that if it's available to the drivers during a Grand Prix, it should be available to them via qualifying as well. But it'll be interesting interesting to see if anything or nothing ultimately comes uh, comes from this discussion. Now, pivoting back to a story we've talked a lot about recently, there's been this ongoing debate within the F1 community, particularly the teams, and of course with the FIA and, and with the commercial rights body, about the fact that we've introduced this cost cap, which is supposed to level the playing field, but it doesn't really level the playing field when some teams have better and bigger tools and toys to play with when it comes to developing 
their cars. And of course, a lot of the infrastructure that you need to invest in as a team comes under the cost cap. So sometimes if you want to introduce a new dyno bench, or if you want to invest in a wind tunnel or some other form of major infrastructure to help develop cars in the future, that comes at the expense of developing your current car. And of course, there are a number of exclusions that allow for certain amounts of infrastructure investment outside of the cap. But the argument generally has been that, hey, some of these smaller teams, including Williams, for example, because they seem to be the, the principal example of this, that they need the opportunity to spend some money outside of the cost cap to get caught up on infrastructure, that it really is an even playing field. And as we discussed last week, the other teams are open to making exceptions, but they also want the same exceptions, that if I'm Red Bull, I'm open to you being able to spend $30 million outside of the cap to invest in infrastructure, but I also want $30 million outside of the cap to invest in infrastructure. And then ultimately you're really no farther ahead when all is said and done because Red Bull's building on top of world-class infrastructure and Williams is just only beginning to introduce world-class infrastructure. So again, there were some pretty hearty conversations last week about this, but Red, or Red Bull, Williams team principal James Voles is incredibly frustrated. And according to Racing News 365, he said that during those conversations, things literally went around in circles. He continues, it's disappointing because there were a number of votes on increasing just globally the amount of CapEx infrastructure by 50 or 70 million. If I wind back to February 20th, which was a few days after I started here, was the first day I put on the table that we as Williams need help. We cannot compete at the front with the facilities that we have at the factory, and that remains the case today. Then in five months or so, it's unfortunate and it's disappointing, frankly, that we're in a situation where, again, that meeting went around in circles, if nothing else. He continues to express his frustrations. Uh, to a certain extent, it will go around in circles because everyone in that room wants to make sure they're not losing out relative to anyone else. There's no way of just letting Williams gain facilities, especially in a circumstance where we're currently sitting seventh in the championship. Other teams will be hurt by the fact that we could we could put in millions. I don't know why I struggle with that. Other teams will be hurt by the fact that we could put in millions while some are in different positions. Some don't have the money to spend. Some don't want to spend the money and some are fearful of change. Aligning that in one room in the space of two hours is simply not possible. Uh, he continues on as well. On every vote, it wasn't a surprise on how it voted. When we spoke about who needs to catch up, on one side of the table was the teams at the back of the grid, and on the other side, teams at the front of the grid. It'll be no surprise that everyone at the back of the grid near enough all unanimously had their hands up for most of these votes and the ones at the front of the grid did not. And he makes, he makes a couple of interesting points here, which is, there are some teams that could benefit themselves by investing in more infrastructure, but they don't want to spend the money. And so therefore they don't want to move forward with this because, Hey, I don't want to spend the money. I also don't want Williams to spend the money and gain an advantage. And then there's these big teams like Williams and Ferrari and, and Red Bull that have these built-in advantages because of all this infrastructure and facility that they were able to build up prior to, to 2021. So I'm, again, I'm sure this is a story that we're going to continue to talk about over the next few weeks and months. And hopefully that hopefully something productive comes out of this because I think in Williams' case, as bad as they are and as bad as the facilities they are, this is the first time in a very long time I felt 
I felt confident that the ownership is willing to invest. And even the past few years under Dalton, I was very skeptical about what their intentions for this team were. Was it that, hey, we want to shine it up and sell it on? Because, of course, they got this for nothing. They picked this this team up for $200 million. And like I said earlier, an F1 team could potentially be worth $1.5 billion. But realistically, if this team was on the open market today, it's probably worth $800 million. So what was their intention? Was it to sell it on and gain that profit? Or are they interested in investing in this team and taking value out of the team as it continues to become more and more successful and win more and more prize money? But it's very, very, very positive that you have a team that is fighting so hard to make up some of that delta in terms of the gap of advantage between the small teams and the big teams because I've been very, very critical of teams like Haas that don't spend and aren't willing to spend and that a team like Alpha Tauri has been a, kind of on a misguided bad trajectory forever. It wasn't clear what their role was in F1, but I think if you have a team like Williams and they want to catch up and they want to spend that money, you need to find a way to let them do it. I guess the challenge is going to be those other teams that are small and don't want to spend the money and don't want to give up that advantage to Williams, but perhaps more problematically, it's those big teams that have that built-in advantage and just don't want to give that up. That's where the FIA and the commercial rights group have to come in and, and they basically have to lay down the law through regulation to make sure that the smaller teams have the opportunity to catch up. Because I think as we're learning, the cost cap itself isn't, isn't enough to create competitive parity within the championship. Uh, let's take another break. And when we come back, we'll jump onto our next news story. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. You thought we were done with Aston Martin, but we're going to talk a little bit more about Aston Martin because I took note of a really great article in Autosport this week by Jonathan Noble. And hey, shout out Matt Summerfield, who got a co-author byline on this for somebody in the media industry. Uh, I pretend to be in the media industry. That's very, very cool to see. But the article kind of speaks to a couple of things. One, it speaks to the fact that at one point during the season, as their performance began to diminish, Fernando Alonso attributed to that decline in performance due to the change of tires. And of course, if you remember back at Silverstone, Pirelli introduced a new construction of tires. So while the compound itself is unchanged, the construction of the tire, the sidewalls have been stiffened because F1 cars are developing at a rate, I think, faster than maybe the FIA and Pirelli had expected. So they needed to introduce a more robust tire that could more safely absorb the forces of this car, especially in high G situations and high speed corners. Uh, 
Aston Martin's senior leadership, I think, and this article concludes the exact same thing, uh, were quick to dismiss that and rather suggested that the main issue here is due to unexpected consequences related to an upgrade package that was introduced at the Canadian Grand Prix. Now, Jonathan Noble speaks to the fact that, hey, these consequences weren't necessarily immediately evident at the Canadian Grand Prix because the track itself is relatively low downforce, low drag nature, um, but that the the unintended consequences of that upgrade have become much more noticeable in subsequent races. So says Mike Crack, and of course this is speaking to the work that they've done in the simulator and the work that they've done through the CFD machines, is the data looks positive from what we've seen so far. We look to be more competitive than recently. Now, the article is interesting primarily because it speaks to something that I talked to in a more speculative tone earlier in the podcast, but, and I quote, a flexi wing explanation. And I'm going to quote from the article here. Rivals in the paddock have suggested that there is another more intriguing answer as to why Aston Martin's form has changed. And it relates to a bit of flexi wing, flexi wing clampdown from the FIA. Autosport has learned that the governing body has been paying particularly close attention to the construction of front wings this year to ensure that teams are not using clever solutions to benefit from flexible components. The FIA and teams have long been aware that if a team can design a front wing that is strong enough when stationary to pass the pull-down tests conducted in the garage by the FIA officials, the delegates, but can flex down in a controlled manner at speed out on track, then a decent chunk of performance can be unleashed. Jonathan Noble's article continues, This has been a constant battleground between teams and the FIA, and an issue that is unlikely to ever go away as it is impossible to make wings that are 100% rigid. It is understood earlier this season, the FIA ramped up its analysis of various designs and expressed some unease about the construction of several front wings, which is, success, or which is suspected could be flexing more than it felt was necessary. Although the wings passed the pull-down tests that check on flexibility, and there was never any suggestion that teams were running illegal cars, any design that allowed the wings to flex at speed could have been deemed to be a breach of Article 322 of the technical regulations. This rule states... All aerodynamic components or bodywork influencing the car's aerodynamic performance must be rigidly secured in a mobile with respect to their frame or reference defined in Article 3.3. Furthermore, these components must produce a uniform, solid, hard, continuous, impervious surface, surface under all circumstances. A flexible front wing would bring notable benefits to a team in being able to run in a higher downforce configuration for corners, but then flexing down at speed on the straights to reduce drag. So as speculative as this concept has been in recent weeks, it becomes somewhat more concrete when it is raised by somebody like Jonathan Noble and Matt Summerfield in an article on autosport.com rather than in an Instagram or a tweet with no substantial references. Now, again, they're not referencing somebody within a team. They're not referencing an FIA official. The FIA hasn't particularly hasn't specifically come out and indicated that this is something that they've been addressing or working with teams on, but it is a very interesting concept. And it would speak to the fact that, Hey, a front wing introduced at a certain point in the season that didn't have those 
characteristics of being flexible at speed, but rigid when stationary would certainly have had these potential impacts to the performance of the car. So again, we've always talked about flexi wings and flexi floors and all those kind of things. But the reality is this could be that reason why their performance has diminished so significantly. Now, whether the FIA ever comes out and makes a statement, whether there's ever a penalty, these things are unlikely. I, I think that there was probably a conversation. Um, it was probably something that was addressed to all of the teams in a memo and Aston Martin acted proactively as opposed to reactively after the FIA begins to investigate more closely. But I think all of this and Jonathan Noble and, and Matt Summerfield do a really great job of summarizing what potentially could have happened here uh, speaks very, very effectively to how their results could have diminished and could have diminished so quickly. Now, another interesting article is that Pirelli of course, they are the current exclusive tire supplier of F1 and based on some things that I think we're hearing out of the Italian and German press will possibly potentially continue to be the tire supplier because it looks like Bridgestone's bid has either not been successful or they've decided to walk away for the time being. But Pirelli is pushing to introduce the concept of a super intermediate F1 wet Tire. Now, Adam Cooper over at motorsport.com writes, the Belgian GP weekend put a further focus on Formula 1's wet weather issues just a couple of weeks after a disappointing test at Silverstone for the FIA's prototype spray guards. He continues, the start of the Saturday sprint event at Spa was delayed by rain, and when eventually got underway, the cars ran on full wet tires behind the safety car, as mandated by the rules, before the field was released. Half the cars then came straight in for intermediates, with the rest following suit at the end of the first flying lap. It was only double stacking and pit lane traffic considerations that stopped everyone from coming in straight away. Post-race drivers were quick to point out afterwards that the full wet tire is pointless as GPDA director George Russell described it with Spa demonstrating once again the catch-22 is that if it's raining hard enough for the wet to be required then visibility issues mean that the cars cannot run at racing speeds continues this wonderful article. The discussion prompted Pirelli to tout an idea had been pondering for a while of ditching the full wets and instead having a single super intermediate that would work across all wet conditions in effect allowing drivers to go from safety car running to racing with the same tire which i think is a very very cool concept now mario isola of course the pirelli f1 boss has said i believe that we have to first of all to divide two problems one is the performance of the wet one is the visibility. Performance-wise, what I can tell you is that when we were developing the blanket-free tires, we found a result in terms of performance that was much, much better than the old wet tire. It's not enough, maybe, but we did a step. In Fiorano and Paul Ricard, we found them to be five, six seconds quicker than the old wet and cold conditions because the main issue was to understand if without blankets, they were struggling with the warm-up. The point is that maybe this performance is still not enough to generate the right crossover with the intermediate. There's too much of a gap between the two compounds and the characteristics and the driving nature is very, very different. Continues this article, the problem Pirelli always faces with wet intermediate development is that it relies on tests that artificially soaked tracks, which I think is pretty interesting. So the concept here is this idea that the full wet 
isn't great in racing conditions because it creates so much spray that the drivers can't really compete and that it's really unique to very specific conditions. And then as soon, as soon as that safety car comes in and the conditions clear at all, everyone goes into intermediates or they skip the intermediates and they go to the slicks knowing that that's where they've got to go to begin with. So the consideration here is kill the dedicated wet kill the intermediate, introduce a hybrid, a super intermediate, so that if you do start in wet conditions and you do start behind a safety car, teams can go straight to racing without the worry of all of the spray that they get from the wets, but it also prevents them from all having to dive right into the pits in a chaotic scene to get onto a slick anyways. It gives them a little bit more breathing room. So again, a very, very cool concept. I think it's very conceptual. I'm not sure if Pirelli necessarily wants to invest in the development of the intermediate or the super intermediate at this stage because they haven't yet inked that contract to extend their exclusive deal with Formula One. But again, it's always exciting when we continue to innovate and we talk about the fact that, hey, what we've got is good, but we want better and we can do better. And I think in that sense, Pirelli has really been, and they probably don't get enough credit. I think they've been a really great partner to the FIA. And I think they've been a really great partner to the teams and to the commercial rights group. And I think their job is an incredibly difficult one that sure they're spending a ton of money on developing the tires and having their brand front and center when it comes to the sport, but there's a lot of risk. And the risk is that no driver or very rarely is a driver going to win a Grand Prix and come out and say, Hey, the tire was fantastic today. The compound was perfect. It lasted just as long as we expected. And it was super predictable. You're probably not going to hear the good stuff, but you're always going to hear the bad stuff. And if you're a tire supplier, you're kind of always in the firing range when it comes to that kind of thing. So all of that said, I think Pirelli's done a really good job. And I think they've done a particularly good job when it comes to engineering tires that the FIA and the championship request. And we know that they're not given a blank canvas to develop the best possible racing tires that really they're given a mandate, which is we need you to develop tires with these characteristics and that can last this long in these temperatures, in these conditions, because we've artificially created this two-stop experience in F1 because we want to have the pit stop and we want to have some tire strategy. And that's reflected in the fact that teams have to run two compounds during a Grand Prix. While we know darn well, Pirelli could develop a single compound that could be super racy and last 40, 50, 60, 70 laps. So I think that the challenge that they're given not only in terms of developing a tire for the fastest race cars on the planet, but also that adheres to the needs of the FIA and the championship is is very, very special. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for what they've been able to develop over the past number of years. Now, the next story, maybe less a story and maybe more just a general reflection. And if you if you flash back to Red Bull's early days in F1, of course, they bought the Jaguar team and they inherited the facility in Milton Keynes and they've continued to build on that. But one of the things that they invested very heavily in at the beginning was a driver academy. And one of the challenges is they, they were developing talent at a rate faster than they could find seats for them in Formula One. And shortly after Red Bull embarked on their Formula One journey, they had the opportunity to buy Minardi. And, and Minardi was a floundering team on the Formula One grid, and they were able to buy them. And they quickly transformed Minardi into Scuderia Toro Rosso. And over the years, Toro Rosso had a Renault engine, it had a 
Ferrari engine, it went back to a Renault engine, then ultimately ended up with a Honda engine. And in its current state, it's known as Alpha Tauri. But the principal role of Minardi, which became Scuderia Toro Rosso, which became Alpha Tauri, was to function effectively as Red Bull's junior team. And I think if you flash back to the 2000s and the teens, Formula was, was in a state where I think they were probably just happy to have stable teams on the grid that we were constantly seeing teams come and go. We had two Lotus teams on the grid at one point. We had Marussia and we had Manor and we had countless other teams that came. Not, not to even mention the works teams like BMW and, and Honda and Toyota that all came and exited the sport. So I think there was a point where there was probably more of an appetite for this concept of a B team or a junior team that ultimately if the team was financially solvent and it could come to a race weekend and know they were going to be able to pay their mechanics, I think Formula One and the teams were generally okay with that. And I think Red Bull's competitors, when it came to Alpha Tauri, Scuderia Toro Rosso, were probably also of the mind that, look, if they're going to use this team as a B team, you know, maybe that helps them with their driver development, but that also aids us because in essence, it's one less truly competitive team on the Formula One grid. Now, in recent months, we've talked a lot about Alpha Tauri principally because they're going through a fairly rapid transformation and the principally Italian-based team is seeing more and more of the input for the development of the future car, the AT05 or whatever it's ultimately called, coming from the UK. And it's this unique arrangement where like its parent team, Red Bull, it, it utilizes Honda power units, which are shipped in from, from Tokyo. And of course, there's a couple of Honda engineers there and the team doesn't have the luxury of opening the power unit, but that's the power unit that they've got. As per Formula One's regulations, they develop all of their own aerodynamic surfaces and they develop their own chassis. But for the last number of years, they've really been on their own when it comes to the direction of, of this team. And that I think Red Bull in a lot of senses were satisfied as long as they had somewhere to stash their drivers. Now in recent years, their, their driver Academy has, has dried up pretty considerably. Of course, Liam Lawson uh, is racing in Japan right now, and he's a potential prospect maybe for next year or the year after. But of course we saw recently that they went outside the Academy for Sergio Perez and they went kind of outside the academy to bring Daniel Ricardo back after he exited unceremoniously in, in 2018. But we've seen some interesting driver and personnel choices. But what we have established over the last couple of months is that Red Bull, for whatever reason, has become genuinely dissatisfied with the state of AlphaTauri. So much so that we know that the team is going to be rebranded. It will have an entirely new name. It'll have an entirely new look next year. And we also know that Red Bull and tends to be far less flexible in terms of Alpha Tauri's ambitions to be autonomous when it comes to developing this car. That if there is a part that can, as per the regulations, be developed by Red Bull in Milton Keynes and sold to that team, that is specifically what they're going to do. That they are not going to be given the autonomy to develop anything internally unless it's required by the regulations. That anything that can be sold to that team will be sold to that team. They're also going to be bringing the team closer to the UK. And there's been open conversations about potentially relocating the team itself to Milton Keynes or a new base 
near Milton Keynes. But I think a lot of this opens up the question of what is the future of this team? And are other teams on the grid still as comfortable with the concept of Red Bull having this built-in advantage of a B team on the grid as maybe they were in years past that really for the first time in Formula One's history, all 10 teams are effectively in a very strong economic state simply because the championship guarantees them so much income that they're all solvent, they're all stable. And like we talked about earlier, some of them are asking for the opportunity to spend more money to invest more heavily in the team. And now we have this championship where you have effectively two teams with the same corporate governance and it becomes a question of fairness from a sporting perspective. But if if Red Bull is really going to start dictating the direction of this team, does this potentially lead to a more, I would say, performance-oriented Toro Rosso, Alpha Tauri, whatever it ends up being called, and does that itself create more friction? That do the rest of the teams on the grid settle and 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 allow this team's existence to continue to persist because it's not a real challenge and that it's not really taking points off them in the championship and it's not really taking championship money out of their pocket at the end of the season. But does that dynamic change if suddenly Red Bull starts equipping and mandating that this team compete for points? That ultimately, if Alpha Tauri is designed to be a marketing exercise for that clothing brand, and it's terrible. That's not a very good marketing exercise. But ultimately, if Red Bull now has made the decision that, hey, we're not going to sell this team, we're going to keep it, and we expect it to be as competitive as it possibly can be in a cost cap world and earn income and show value, financial value to the greater Red Bull organization, as well as continuing to function as a place for us to put our junior drivers. Does that cause disruption and friction with the rest of the grid? And all of this is leading to a very interesting quote that Red Bull's helmet Marco made a couple of days ago with relation to Alpine and Andretti. And of course, we've talked at length about the fact that Andretti wants to get on the grid, but Marco has a solution. And his solution, quote unquote, is that Andretti should buy the Alpine team. That would be best served for everyone. Formula One would keep its 10 teams. Andretti could finally get in and Renault would still be involved. Wow. So I'm going to take a deep breath here because I think, as a lot of you know, Helmut Marco says a lot of things that I don't necessarily agree with. I am strongly of the mind that it is abhorrent and wildly outrageous that in a 10-team championship that two teams have the same corporate governance, corporate parents. But for Helmut Marco to suggest that Andretti should get on the grid by buying an existing works team is absurd especially when every other team on the grid should be championing openly and vocally for Andretti to buy Alpha Tauri. That should be what people are talking about. And for some reason, this has never occurred to me that Andretti should probably be in Formula One. I, I don't know what else he needs to do at this point. He has the financial resources, the financial backing. He has a partnership in General Motors. The solution is just 
The solution is so obvious. The solution is that the team should band together and the FIA and the championship should mandate a sale of, of Alpha Tauri to an outside group because that removes this questionable questionable sense of competitive integrity in the championship when one team owns another team. And again, we know that Christian Horner can't pick up the phone and, and call, call Alpha Tauri mid race, but we also know darn well that the Alpha Tauri drivers understand what their role is in a race when it comes to potentially protecting the Red Bull drivers, that there are some very real competitive consequences to having two teams on the grid with the same owner. But the the solution is so obvious that Red Bull forced, mandated to sell this team. They will make a killing. The reality is they effectively paid nothing for Minardi back in 2005. Every penny that they earn on that sale will be incremental value that they can reinvest in Red Bull or report as income to the corporate body that is the Australian-based Red Bull organization. And then Andretti gets on the grid and that satisfies all the other teams because they haven't allowed 11th team on the grid. Now, again, maybe they'll rankle a few of them because suddenly you have a team in Alpha Tauri that's never truly been competitive and now is equipped to be competitive. But ultimately, that's not going to happen overnight anyways but the answer is so obvious and it's just it's so outrageous that Marco Helmet Marco's solution to the Andretti problem the problem of getting Andretti on the grid and resolving his wants and needs to join the championship that his solution is for him to buy a works team no Helmet the solution is he buys Alpha Tauri and has his own team on the grid and you lose that unfair competitive advantage that you've had since 2005. So anyways, I'm rambling a little bit now, but it's, it's a topic that I just feel really, really, really passionate about, both in the sense that as time has progressed, I've become much more amenable to the idea of Andretti being on the grid, that if you have a team that has the resources and wants to spend every dollar possible to be a competitive Formula One team, we should embrace that. Again, if they want to enter as an 11th team, I'm totally open to the idea of a fierce negotiation between the commercial rights group and that team in terms of what they should pay. But at the same time, Alpha Tauri shouldn't exist and there should be a mandated sale and that sale should possibly go to Andretti, of course, open market, bidding war, et cetera, et cetera. But it just seems like such a natural fit that it resolves the team's concern about having an 11th team on the grid. It resolves this concern about sporting integrity, which doesn't come up enough, um, but possibly will come up more in, in, in future years. But I think it would be such a, a perfect solution to, to everybody. Now, the next topic, Miami. So Miami joined the grid in 2022. And if you remember, this was a this was a concession really that was granted because there was a point when the owner of the Miami Dolphins working with a Gulf Country Sovereign Wealth Fund themselves were looking to buy Formula One. And ultimately, I think one of the conversations that was had when Liberty ultimately took control of, of Formula One was that, hey, you know what, Mr. Miami Dolphins owner, uh, we are very intent on growing the sports and sorry you missed out on the opportunity to buy in yourself, but we are going to grant you a race. And of course, initially the hope, the desire was that the Miami Grand Prix would happen downtown. It would race on the causeway on the waterfront with the skyscrapers in the background. It would have been very cool. And I, I even remember at one point, Lewis Hamilton retweeting or reposting uh, a picture of what that potential map was going to look like. 
that wasn't necessarily realistic. I think the thousands of people living downtown didn't necessarily want a Formula One race in their backyard. So they settled on building a semi-permanent structure at Hard Rock Stadium, which is, of course, where the Miami Dolphins play. They didn't have to acquire property. They just had to get some zoning permissions and satisfy some of the neighbors who themselves were probably very unhappy about having a Formula One race in the background. But one of the cool things about Miami is that one, it's been well-received, but increasingly the race organizers are continuing to invest in the experience for drivers, for team members, and perhaps most importantly, for the fans. Now, we've talked recently about the fact that there's aspirations that eventually this could become a night race, and we know that's not going to happen in time for 2024, but Miami GP president Tyler Epp does have some updates regarding the future of the championship, which seems very bright. He says, We've had conversations with the FIA and F1 about trying to get a little more rubber laid onto the track prior to the F1 cars going out. That's something we're looking into for next year. We'll try to make it the very best environment possible because it was almost two seconds better and we saw an increased number of passes, including a pass for the lead. Asked by motorsport.com about having more support races in 2024. Epps said, I think it's very, very viable that we would go back to two support races supporting F1 next year. Exactly what those are, we're still working through, but I will tell you that it's being driven by trying to make sure the F1 races and practice sessions are performing in the best possible way that they can, not necessarily just trying to fill the schedules. Uh, Continues motorsport.com. The article says one of the big changes that Miami made for this year's event was relocating the F1 team paddock inside the Hard Rock Stadium itself, which was pretty darn Regarding that specific move, he said, we were happy with it. And this is Mr. Epp. Uh, we were happy with it for two main reasons. The first one was that the key stakeholders experience was improved. I think almost universally, we got that feedback from the teams, the drivers, and even the media. And everyone said that it was a good change. We got very little negative feedback. And there were a couple of things like the electric shocks, but can adjust some things. And those problems are all fixable. The other point is that we couldn't do something in that football stadium on that pitch without making sure that we engage the fans. I think that was the quiet benefit that we didn't talk a lot about. When you start getting to the point where drivers are walking across the paddock to the team buildings and people are chanting, that's authentic. And now we can start to build something as word gets around in the F1 communities. This article continues on that it sounds like the Miami GP race organizers are very committed to a future of night races in Miami. I think we may have spoken in the last podcast about the fact that that's all but confirmed for 2024, that that's not going to happen. That would involve quite a bit of physical infrastructure. Um, but furthermore, it would require the approval of the FIA and of course, Formula One, because I think the desire would be that it wouldn't be a Sunday night race, although that's possible that, again, it could possibly be a Saturday night race in a la uh, Las Vegas, which of course is going to be racing on the Saturday night this year. But that's something that they obviously intend to continue to explore. Again, partly because it makes for a better driver experience because it's a little bit cooler. You risk the, you avoid that risk of a mid-afternoon rain shower. And of course, from a customer perspective, a fan perspective, I think if you have the opportunity to sit down and watch a race in dusk at night in May at 7 p.m., it's a much, much more pleasurable experience than walking around the complex in the 
bright sunshine at at 2 p.m. So some cool stuff here. Uh, finally, Epp added a couple of other interesting points. Uh, a number of the promoters have been very helpful, Singapore and specifically Vegas. So we've talked about, could we do this? Does this make sense? But we didn't really get too deep into that analysis. This is him speaking to the night race because at some point it's, why are you doing it? We have to make sure there's a justifiable reason. It's very unlikely that we would do it for 2024, but we will continue to evaluate. We're always looking at ways to make the experience better. And if we get to the place where F1 says this really does work for us from a broadcast perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Certainly we'll take a look at it. Continues this article on motorsport.com. Motorsport.com understands that Miami is one of the candidates to hold the sprint race in 2024 as F1 chiefs close in on a decision about which six venues will get the races next year. Epp continues on the idea of a sprint race. We're always interested in the sprint race, he said, but I will also tell you that quality is really valuable for us, right? Like we see a lot of value in the qualification experience in F1. I think there's a ton of our fans that have given us a great feedback about traditional qualifying, but we're here to support F1. And if we have an opportunity to host a sprint race at some point, we welcome that, but it's not something that we're actively pursuing. So of course, now we're Two years into the Miami experience, they drew 240,000 fans over the first three days in 2022. They drew 270,000 this year, like we talked about last week or the week before. It looks like they're going to be adding additional capacity, specifically for race day this year, so we could see as many as 100,000 people at Hard Rock Stadium over the course of the Grand Prix race weekend. Now, just a couple more articles before we wrap up on this Friday. Uh, another article here from motorsport.com written by Adam Cooper, it has been revealed that F1's second quarter income was hit by the Imola Grand Prix cancellation. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that in a circumstance where a race is canceled due to factors outside of the control of the race organizers, they do not pay that sanctioning fee onto F1. So F1, who had clearly forecast and budgeted for the income from that race, did lose out. According to motorsport.com, F1's revenue for the second quarter of this year dropped to $724 million from $744 the prior year. Again, from a business perspective, same year positive comps are always very, very important. Although I think it's going to become increasingly difficult for Formula One to comp some of these golden year numbers, 21, 22, 23, as we get out of the COVID pandemic and and the fervor uh, around Formula One continues to grow. I think it's going to be difficult to continue to comp and grow that number. So it'll be interesting to see. Uh, this article continues that the drop from 744 to 724 was a result of a $10 million drop in primary revenue, which includes race fees, media rights, and sponsorship, and another $10 million, which was lost in other, although not clearly defined, revenue streams. Uh, continues this article, motorsport.com. The payments to the 10 teams for the period similarly fell from 360 $68 million to $344 million, while after those and other costs were taken into account, F1 profits increased slightly from $49 to $52 million. So even though Formula One saw less total revenue, their profitability increased. And I think had we been able to have a successful Imola Grand Prix, obviously revenue would have been significantly higher and profitability itself would have been much, much higher itself. But Formula One and the teams continue to do 
very, very, very well. Uh, in a statement from Liberty, it was noted that primary F1 revenue decreased in the second quarter with gross across multiple race promotion and sponsorship opportunities offset by a decline in media rights revenue. Despite one less race held in the current period, race promotion revenue grew due to contractual increases in fees and sponsorship revenue increased due to recognition of revenue from new sponsors and growth in revenue from existing sponsors. Media rights revenue decreased due to the impact of lower proportionate recognition of season-based income, partially offset by continued growth in F1 TV subscription revenue and increased fees under new and renewed contractual agreements. Liberty further added that revenue decreased in the second quarter primarily due to lower freight income driven by the easing of freight costs, inflation on billing rates, and lower hospitality revenue due to one less race held in the current period that was partially offset by increased licensing income and higher revenue related to F2, F3 car chassis sales. So a lot there. And like I said last week, I want F1 to be successful because I want to see a great championship and I want to see great cars and I want to see great drivers. But ultimately, if F1 makes $750 million in a quarter as opposed to 710, does that really affect me? Does that really affect the experience on the track? I don't know if I want to get too excited. I'm not a shareholder, so I don't have a personal stake in this. And like I've said before, the reality is as the sport has increased and a lot of this income has skyrocketed, it has skyrocketed at the expense of the those F1 fans that continue to pay to see and pay to travel to see races, but it also comes at the expense to those that no longer go to Grand Prix simply because they've been priced out. So I think the reality is Formula One's in a boom, and the question is whether this boom's going to continue, and if it does, for how long? And maybe maybe it's sustainable, but then again, you know, 15 years ago in the late 2000s, we thought that the NASCAR boom was something that was going to continue forever, and of course, they suffered tremendously during the global recession session in 07, 08, 09, and they've recovered, but they've never recovered to the heights of the, the early and mid 2000s. So it'll be interesting to see if F1 can continue to sustain this growth and this degree of profitability. But as they showed this quarter, despite the fact that they held one less race than maybe they expected, they actually saw increased profitability by the tune of $3 million versus the same period the prior year, despite the fact that revenue was down. So I think Liberty's probably very, very happy with their financial results so far this year. The teams pulling in over $368 million between them was are also probably equally as, as happy. Finally, just a couple more stories, and I thought this was pretty interesting because I don't think people realize this, but McLaren has obviously been talking for many, many years about the fact that they've been planning and planning and planning to build a new wind tunnel at their facility in Woking in the UK. But since 2010, they've actually been using Toyota's old F1 wind tunnel in Cologne, Germany. So of course that's going to come to an end because it's expected that McLaren's new wind tunnel is going to open as soon as this month. But according to motorsport.com, there's a possibility that Toyota and McLaren may continue to work together on their Formula One project, says TGRE Managing Director Rob Lupin. Our door remains open to McLaren. We wish them nothing but success with the new wind tunnel. And whilst that naturally changes what services McLaren requires from us and how often their engineers are likely to be at our facility in Cologne, we have an open dialogue and are playing a constructive part in the process of integrating their new wind tunnel into their development program. I think on this activity, we have clearly shown how TGRE can add long-term value to top-level engineering projects, and we look forward to supporting innovative companies like McLaren in 
the future. And of course, like I said, McLaren has been using that facility since 2010, roughly a year after Toyota exited Grand Prix racing. So it was kind of a win-win for both of them that Toyota had this physical finish completed infrastructure and they didn't have a use for it and McLaren needed a wind tunnel and there was a wind tunnel available to them so they were able to use it and every McLaren challenger since then has has cut its teeth in that tunnel so Andrea Stella McLaren team principal was also clear that Toyota's input was something that deserves significant praise he says TGRE support has been invaluable to our success we have established a good working relationship between the McLaren team and the staff on site of that facility with their in-house additive management manufacturing capabilities and other on-site facilities being vital to the development process of our cars. As we move forward towards or as we move forward towards the commissioning of our on-site wind tunnel, which offers significant efficiencies to McLaren and aligns with the new structure being built at the team, we would like to recognize that the work done with the TGRE wind tunnel has been instrumental in the team's progress in the past, and we think thank TGRE for their invaluable support across this and of course, if you're wondering what TGRE stands for, I am also wondering, but it actually means Toyota Gazoo Racing Europe. So a pretty cool story here on motorsport.com from, from our friend Jonathan Noble. Now we're going to end the show tonight on a really good positive story for once. I think there's been a lot of negative stuff recently, but this is pretty cool. Mohammed bin Salem, the current FIA president, has shared some quotes in the media, and racefans.net picked this up, as did a number of different publications, but he's effectively committing that in 2026, we are going to have much lighter Formula One cars. Again, I'm going to pause there, much lighter Formula One cars. And this is really great news because I think one of the things that people have been very critical of over the recent years is that Formula One cars have become bigger. And when I say bigger, they haven't really become much wider since the mid-80s. In fact, I think in the mid-80s, they were at their maximum width, but they have become significantly longer and they have become significantly heavier. And part of the reason for the added weight is the complexity of the powertrain. You've added a battery, you've added all kinds of electrical systems and, and hybrid energy recovery mechanisms, the cars have become heavier. And plus you've added some snot insignificant weight for safety systems. And I think the argument for those is very logical. And I don't think anyone would ever argue against something like a, a crash structure or a halo. But all of that to say cars have become much heavier. And that impacts performance in a straight line because they don't accelerate as quickly. And it's also a much heavier burden, no pun intended. It's a much more challenging burden for a heavy car to go through a corner more quickly. It adds a lot of strain and it adds a lot of load on the tires and a lot of load on the suspension. It's just more challenging that if you have a lighter car that produces equivalent horsepower to a car that's much heavier, the lighter car is always going to win. It's just going to be a better package overall. Now, the quote from Mohammed bin Salam is this, uh, I've driven rallies myself, give me everything, but please, no heavy car. That always bothered me, he told Motorsport Total in an interview. Lighter cars are better, and I know what I'm talking about. If the weight is heavier, the suspension is compromised, the brakes don't work as well, the tires wear out more quickly, and more weight is more dangerous in a crash. And just for the record, he's absolutely right on every single one of these points. Now, this article on racefans.net has a really great comp here. It states that in 2001, the minimum weight of an F1 car was 600 kilograms. For 2023, the cars clock in at an incredible 798 
kilograms. Now, I'm incredibly enthusiastic about the idea of reducing the weight of a Formula One car. I think that is a tremendous concept for all of the reasons, for all of the reasons that Mohammed Ben Salam just spoke to a couple of moments ago. I think it's great. The challenge is, how do you do that? When one, you've invested in safety equipment that is now a necessity, a requirement that didn't exist decades ago. And then furthermore, how do you reduce weight when so much of that weight is packaged in the battery store and the hybrid systems? That that's not weight that you can necessarily extract because you're committed to those as part of the 2026 regulations. So generally, when you speak to an engineer, the sense is, hey, you know what? You can continue to carry on that safety structure and the halo and that hybrid system but you have to reduce the dimensions of the car. And that makes sense. Logically, you shorten the length of the car because there's less chassis, there's less mass. But the problem is you also then compromise your aerodynamic surfaces. So maybe the car doesn't create as much downforce. And if the car's shorter, the floor is shorter, which means you're creating less downforce. And then is the car suddenly that much that much faster. So it's it's lighter, but it creates less downforce. So it's not as fast in the corner. So again, all of this is an engineering challenge, but I think if you're like me and my BFF Randy, who commiserates with me that endlessly on WhatsApp, the cars are very big and they're very heavy. And I think we would all love to live in a world where we could find a way to create smaller Formula One cars without compromising much or any of the current performance. And that's going to be a challenge, but that's why we have world-class engineers staffed at all of these teams and at the FIA to help us find a solution. So again, promised I would end on a positive note. I think that's very cool that if the president of the FIA is committed to smaller and lighter cars, and we know that Stefano Domenicali is committed to smaller and lighter and more compact power units in the future, maybe there's some synergies there. And maybe in 2026, we get a smaller, more compact car. And maybe in 2030, we get a smaller and more compact power unit. And ultimately the racing could be better for everybody. Or maybe it's no different at all, who knows. On that note, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for listening to my rambling tonight. I had a ton of fun. Like I said at the top, we want your questions for Power Units 103, and we're super excited to get those. I think it'll be super cool to play them on the air. I think it's a way to be super inclusive and bring our audience into the show itself where I think you deserve to be because you are the backbone of everything that we do. And, and like I always say at the end of the show, if you like what we do, uh, if you listen on Spotify and you can give us a rating, that would be amazing. We really appreciate that. And likewise, if you listen on Apple, if you could give us a rating or a review, we'd also super, super, super appreciate that. Also, like I said off the top of the show, Daily is dropping a very cool Australia-themed episode on Sunday. You'll have to tune in to check out what that is all about. We also have shows coming up with Trey Kirby from The Athletic, The No Dunks podcast. We also have Megan Gilks from F1 Academy joining us a little bit later this month. We're just trying to lock down a date. And of course, we have some other very cool shows coming up as well. And with that, my gosh, we're almost halfway through the summer break. We're almost two weeks into the summer break. I hope you're all enjoying your summer. Before you know it, it's going to be September. The NFL season will be upon us again, and it will be time to walk through the Halloween decoration sections at your local Costco. Ah, on that note, everybody, have a fantastic weekend, and if you have any questions or feedback, reach out to us as always. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song, and my song's gon' break through like a running back.